Hello. Hello again. <laughs> we're back. We're back. Back for another episode. And I feel like we're building on building this capability. We're filling the gaps here. And as each episode progresses, we're, we're learning more and building that confidence and understanding and just uh, interest in the mm. life sciences space. I and, hope and, so. Yeah. I hope, we oh. certainly hope we're building interest and awareness. <laughs> That's definitely the aim of the game here. But yeah, this is a really different tack for this conversation. And the focus really came about from conversations that we had with investors here in WA about what they wanted to know. And one of them was this topic, which is the area of government incentives and what the government does to support these companies and startups. So it was a really great conversation. Yeah, it's such an important one too, because it can sometimes feel like a little bit of a black box. And how do you find out this type of information that if you're getting more involved in life sciences, anything in, in healthcare for that matter, in terms of innovation, what support is there from the government? Uh, like if, you, if you're doing all of this research, how does that all come out in the wash from, from tax incentives? And so I think there's some really good insights and reflections based on experience, again, from, from these guests, which will be introduced in a second, but also potentially inspiration for others or tactics that, that might be helpful to, to apply in, in, uh, in your own setting. So for sure, um, it's a team sport and you need lots of different experts along the way. And I think that these would be two experts that I'd want to have in my camp. Yeah. So this is the conversation that I had with Greg Reby, Accelerating Commercialization Facilitator for the Oz Industry Program and Steve Elias from RSM. Welcome. Thanks, guys. I'm going to start by letting you introduce yourself. So, Greg, do you want to go first? Because you're right in front of me. Oh, thank you. So, Greg Reby, my background is properly relevant here is 20 odd years of commercializing emerging tech. My background is dominantly sort of software technology, but I've been involved in a range of other technologies as well, software, hardware, range of different sectors. My sort of day jobs of what I do now is probably a portfolio of a few th different things. One is in, in terms of I'm a company director on a few technology businesses. Some have been around for quite a while. I've been involved in angel investing for the last dozen years. So quite active in that sort of early stage private investment. And the other thing I'm doing at the moment is very much in representing a federal government fund. I, I call accelerating commercialization. Understand technology, bit of equity funding, dilutory funding, and from the government grants, non-dilutory funding. Which is why we invited you to talk about government incentives here for an education to educate investors around investing in high tech sector like life sciences. Thank you very much for coming and sharing your insights. And Steve. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me. So my background, 20 year history, really starting off from the science days, honours degree in chemistry, mainly synthetic organic chemistry. As you do in WA, you tend to fall into mining. So I ended up at a mining company doing synthetic work Flocklands coagulants industry rheology modifiers. Rheology modifiers. Yeah. I don't think I could spell that. Muds and things like that. Oh, and, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's clear as mud, right? Yeah, absolutely <laughs> great. <laughs> From there, happened to intersect into business and started getting involved with the R&D tax incentive world. So been involved with that for about 15 years. So the R&D tax incentive program and grants. Again, why you're perfectly placed. Thank you very much for coming along today to share your expert and experience of combined what must be decades of experience in the in this space of government incentives. Greg, I might start with you because you're actually employed by the federal government in this space. And what I think I'm interested in is why does the government invest in incentives at all? 
What's the purpose of it from a government perspective? I think in some particular areas, the very early stage, there's a high level of risk um, in terms of coming up with new IP, developing that side of things. So government's sort of there recognising that maybe the private sector's not going to participate in that. And so they're looking to see how they can support the development of that new IP to get it to a stage where hopefully private investment will actually want to participate. So from an accelerating commercialisation, we come in post-research and development, so post the R&D of tax incentive, but to help you demonstrate the value proposition so that you can get to your first sale. So hopefully once you get your first sale, you've now got a validation of that a customer wants it and therefore private capital would be is more available at that stage. Yeah, right. And what about from your perspective, Steve? So from R&D tax incentive, why does the government do that? Look, it's been around since about 1986 and I guess it's changed modalities a few times, but I guess the primary purpose is just to support innovation in Australia and to be competitive against the other OECD company countries. A lot of those countries do have somewhat similar programs and offerings to different values. It is really much to focus on propping up and starting up those early stage companies and giving, the, giving them a leg up and I guess retaining those developments and the, the commercialisation that comes with it at a later stage within Australia rather than companies going offshore immediately. Yeah, right. Okay. So we're talking about preparing Australia to be a country that's forward-thinking, high-tech, innovative and well-placed. Okay. To stick with you, in terms of, we've, we mentioned R&D tax incentives. What does that mean? How do you explain what that looks like and what that program is? Yeah. So it's a self-assessment program. A company has to register their R&D activities each financial year and they claim their R&D expenditure and their tax return each year to get their benefit. Effectively, think back to, I guess, the listenership is may have all science backgrounds to some extent. So it's very much just following that scientific experimental methodology that we're all used to. So starting from your aim or hypothesis that you've got and going through experimental process, developing new knowledge, what are your observations and results? So just going through that process really in a formal manner putting that together in what would be not only laboratory but real-world R&D and innovation. And what is the incentive? How does it work? So I invest a million dollars in, in R&D to develop a new drug to cure cancer. Yeah. How do you get involved in those projects? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So the, I guess the benefit to the company, and again, there's various benefits, different modes within the program, but I guess the simplest one, I'll keep to that one, to really prop up those startup companies that are probably operating in those tax losses in the initial first few years. And pre-revenue. Pre-revenue. And so the benefit is effectively their company tax rate plus a premium of 18.5%. So call it 25% tax rate plus 18.5, you get 43.5 cents in the dollar. So on a million dollars of eligible R&D spend, a company can get back a check of 435000 so does that work? That works. So you spend your money in a year and then you get the check back? Is it once a year, like when I put my tax return once in? once a year, yeah, when you put your tax return in. So you have to register your R&D activities each year first. You're deemed registered in the system by the governed body, Oz Industry, and then through the ATO, through your tax return, you claim your eligible dollars there. Yeah, right. So that's a fairly standard process that most companies can get access to? As long as you meet the eligibility criteria, yeah, definitely. Excellent. And in your experience, how many life science companies meet the eligibility criteria? Is it fairly easy or is it a little bit more lineable? No. So look, I guess R&D is available to almost any industry. There are a couple of exclusions there, but typically as long as you're following that scientific method and you're doing something new, novel, unique, hasn't been done before, being innovative, then typically you'd meet the criteria. Excellent. And 43.5 cents in your dollar back, is that's a pretty good tax return. In a certain realm. Yeah. Excellent. 
Greg, I'm going to come to you. We talked about accelerating commercialization. So that's part of the entrepreneurs program, correct? I wonder if you can explain a little bit more about the accelerating commercialization program. So the entrepreneurs program sits within Aus industry as well. The entrepreneurs program has a series of services. One of those is called Innovation Connections. So it's very much at that R&D level Steve's talking about. The next stage of that is commercializing. That's accelerating commercialization program. And then if you're an established business, there's the growth program. We're talking here probably covering the relatively full life cycle of a business. So where accelerating commercialization fits in is really post that R&D that Steve's just been talking about. So for you to actually get to the starting position of, of being eligible for a AC grant, you really need to have completed your R&D to the stage where you've got a proof of concept that you've been able to validate that underpinning science and that you've been able to validate there is problem-solution fit. So someone in the market has a definite problem, they're fanging for a solution, and yours is superior to the alternatives in terms of that. So it's so AC looks at novel intellectual property that's substantially different from anybody else. That sort of commercialization stage tends to be the hardest one to fund because most venture funding tends to want to look at where you've actually got a some traction, you've got your sales, you've got your growth. And so that's why the AC program sort of exists in that it recognises that that's a hard area to get funded. So just using your terms, Steve, we're going to give you a leg up to help you get to the point where you not only can validate your value proposition by getting your first sale, but that may actually help you then have enough evidence to get your growth capital in terms of that. It's a little different in its funding in that it's more of a a dollar for dollar. It's a very competitive program, and I'd say the competition is that it's got to have a lot of merit in it. As with R&D, you've got to spend the money before you get it back. With accelerating commercialization, you've got to have your secured money that you're asking the government to match, but it's then provided for you to spend, right? So going forward. So a classic commercialization project that could be eligible for an AC grant is typically it's at that stage where you've got proof of concept, problem solution fit, and you now want to run a demonstration project to be able to build your demonstrator, do your demonstration to someone or someones, and if the results of that demonstration are favorable, that someone says, this is doing what I want it to do, hopefully they're going to enter into a commercial agreement, hopefully your first sale. So let's call that stage product market fit. So that the I guess the bookends of an AC project is problem solution fit, proof of concept, product market fit, almost beta release, if I could put it that from a software parlance type of thing. And federal government, as I say, This program exists because it's hard to privately fund that stage, but the government's not there to take the risk, it's there to share the risk. So it it looks for you to go and see if you can fund as much as possible so that you've got sufficient there, which is 50%, dollar for dollar, that you have the money that the government can match in terms of that to fully fund a proper project. And that's really cool because now you can start thinking about what's a proper project, don't doing it half-baked, let's do it fully-baked and hopefully demonstrate something that a customer wants to buy. Yeah, absolutely. So so it's not R&D though, to be clear. No, in so, fact, actually, I often use a sort of a metaphor of a 4 by 100 metre relay race. So leg one, that's actually R&D. Leg two is commercialisation in an AC sense. Leg three is when I've now got it in the market and I'm just selling it repeatedly and scalably. Leg four is when I now a mature company and have us 
hopefully it can harvest all that value, right? So it's just a four-legged race. So R&D tax incentive is leg one, AC's leg two, selling leg three, reaping the rewards leg four. Yeah, right. Finish so the, the, then you finish the then race. You finish the race. <laughs> Collapse in a heap. Yeah. <laughs> and the life science companies, I suppose that's just several years down the track. Life sciences type projects can be different because of the various stages and studies that you've got to go through in terms of demonstrating your value proposition. So there's still a lot of R&D in that first part that I think the R&D fits in. But as you're doing some of those clinical studies, you're doing some of those regulatory approval pathways, a lot of that sort of activity is eligible commercialization expenditure. And so it can be part of it. Yeah, Maybe another thing would be in an R&D, Steve, I don't think that covers IP or patents, if, and which patents would be big and very important in this sector. AC will cover some of the patenting costs. So that's a bit different between the R&D level and the commercialization level. Yeah, so really important, I think, for people to understand how these programs work, what they will do, what they won't do, and then the synergies. I can see how there's a pathway of support along the way, but you've got to know who to go to, right? Oh, I think very much so. I think actually, I think it's incumbent on those life science venture, the entrepreneurs, to actually understand their race and they know when to go and talk to Steve. And once they're finished with Steve, they know they can come talk to me. <laughs> And then hopefully once they've finished that part of the link, they go talk to a private capital provider and then they're away. Yeah, but there's help to be had. How does the AC work? So I go away and I fill out an application, like submitting my tax return with Steve's help, or is it a little bit different than that? A little bit different. How you engage with the Accelerating Commercialization Program is that there is an opportunity to actually put in what they call an application for guidance. And it's a fairly non-onerous, maybe four or five pages. We want to know a bit about you. We want to know why your IP is novel. Why do you think the market wants it? But if that fits into the eligibility criteria that you're an Australian business, less than 20 million turnover, you own the IP, that actually gets you eligible to actually get guidance. And what they mean by getting guidance is getting access to people like me, commercialization facilitators. And there's about 25 or 30 of us around the country. Some of them actually have deeper domain experience in this sector than I do, but there's some that have much deeper domain expertise in engineering or mining or whatever. So that first start is just putting in an application for guidance. Once you've done that, what we want to assess is that you've really got a project and you're structuring the project well. And so our guidance is to help you structure a commercialization project. So you help me write my project? I help you structure it. And if we think that there's actually a project that's going to be competitive, We'll invite you to start writing a full grant. I think success can be for you in the program is that that you may not actually have a competitive project. So we don't want you to go and spend all your time writing a pro an application which does take a fair amount of time. We don't want you writing that if it's not going to be successful. So we try and help you get to make that call yourself. I think we've had conversations about there's no such thing as free money, and what I mean by that is that while the grant is non-dilutory. So there's no cost in that way. Your time is extremely valuable. And so we don't want you wasting your time because that's expensive. And so if we think that you have a project, we'll invite you to write a, a full grant application and we'll be sitting alongside you, giving you feedback to sit there and say, strengthen this, improve this. How do you answer that? What evidence have you got there? To the point that those merit criteria now become greater merit and the more merit more competitive you are and the more competitive you are is there's a chance that you'll be successful in securing the grant. 
Yeah, right. So even beyond just securing the grant, it sounds like there's a lot of value to be had in going through that process. Yeah, I've been involved in this program now for about a year and a half, but I've heard others actually say that they come for the money but stay for the guidance. That's a nice tagline. Yeah, no, I think it is. But knowing my colleagues, that's how they work too. They actually really want to make sure that there's competitive projects. Steve, how do you reckon that a company best uses the R&D tax incentive in their journey? A word that I'll try and use journey and pivot so I can cover as many buzzwords as I can. I think it's a great opportunity definitely at the very early stage in, in those formative years when they're looking, as we've mentioned multiple times now, getting a leg up. It's if you're innovative and you're doing good work in that area, then why not access that sort of self-assessment program, which is part of the tax program. From that, so I guess part of the journey is, and we've spoken about the commercialization side that their Greg offers, but there's, a, there's definitely a whole bunch of innovation grants out there as well. I love a good acronym, so I'll use it as the acronym <laughs> GIGS, so Government and Industry Grants. So local, state, federal grants and also various industry bodies that offer grants out there as well. Different forms of grants open up at different various times of the year sporadically and along the way that offer different types of funding and most of them, as Greg mentioned, are leveraged more often than not one for one. I guess putting that into the whole mix as well with the R&D tax can quite work quite well. The one thing about government grants and I guess R&D, the tax incentive is that Double dipping is a problem, so I guess the government don't like you to double dip two forms of government assistance for the same project, which is fair enough. So just got to be cautious about that. But it's not to say that you can't have a grant for one part of your project, innovation grant for one part of the project, and another the R&D tax incentive for another part of the project where they don't intersect. So there's an opportunity there. Look, I think the other mechanism is also part of the tax program is, which I don't think a lot of companies know about still, is the ESIC program. Again, love another acronym. Uh, Please explain. Early stage innovation company. Uh, That program came out um, in legislation back in 2016. So it's been around for about six, coming up seven years now. Uh, Effectively, again, it's self-assessment. It's part of the tax program. It's more geared towards the investor getting a benefit rather than the company. But effectively what happens is the company qualifies itself as an ESIC company and they do that by going through under two stages. So you've got to pass the what they call the early stage test and that's typically about the company expenses and how big you are or how small you are. And then the second part is passing a 100-point innovation test. There's a prescribed list of how many points you get for e.g. doing an R&D claim or having a grant or going through an accelerator program. If you get your 100 points under self-assessment, then the company qualifies as an asset company. You look, if you can't, in the early stage, a lot of companies might not be able to reach the 100-point test. So there is actually an option to go to the commissioner and apply for a PBR, private funding ruling, and to see whether they can qualify through that pathway. Effectively, the company qualifies as an ESIC, but it's the investor who acquires new equity shares that the company issues, they get the benefit. And the benefit is a 20% non-refundable tax offset on the price of their shares up to a certain value. The other benefit that investors get is that if they hold those shares within a 10-year period, it's CGT free. So that's another, another benefit there. That's quite a substantial benefit, I would have thought, as an, yeah. as an so investor. Putting two companies equally side by side, if all everything else being equal, if one is SE qualified and the other one isn't, all it is, it's just attracts the investor to the SE qualified company because, hey, I might be able to get a non-refundable tax offset here and some CGT-free period for my shares. So to simplify it, maybe in a helpful analogy, maybe not, you tell me, it's kind of like a DGR status. So if a charity, if I donate to a charity that has that status, 
I'm going to get a tax offset for my donation. So I'm more incentivized to donate to that charity as opposed the to investor someone else. will still need to get their own tax advice on that to see how big they are as a as an investor. But yes, effectively, non-dilutive funding grants. Like we said, it's free money. Sounds pretty great to me, particularly as an investor, the opportunity to leverage your money and multiply and make it go further. But surely it can't be that easy, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch, like you've already said. Great. So what kind of governance, administration or other kind of obligations or issues do companies and investors need to be aware of in this space? Who wants to go first? I think there is actually, there's a degree of effort that you've got to put into to secure the funding that you're seeking. I think there is a whole range of different funding from delutery being investment, and that's where ESIC comes in and really important. Or there's non-delutery funding, which might be an incentive scheme like R&D or AC grant or some of the other grants that Steve was alluding to. In a lot of ways, you've got to be able to communicate the value proposition of why people should participate with you. And quite frankly, government wants to make a decision as to why they should participate with you, so do private investors. So I find from even, say, the accelerating commercialization, a lot of what we actually ask you to prepare is not that different to what a private investor wants. In fact, actually, you see this, this is a series of eligibility criteria that you've got to meet to get the tick, right? But then there's a lot of merit criteria. There's five merit criteria, actually, that you need to be able to substantiate why you're better than another one to get that grant funding. Of the five, one's called a need for funding, so... As I said earlier, the government's there because they know it's really hard. They'd like to see you try to get it to begin with. And if you are unsuccessful, tried and haven't got it all, well, you have a need for funding. The other four are exactly what a private investor looks at. I want to know about the management capability. I want to know why the team is the A team, you know, why they can not only talk the walk, but they can walk the talk. I really want to know what the market opportunity is. Why is there a problem in the marketplace? How big is it? And do you have a way of actually protecting your ground, your IP? The fourth one's very much the value proposition. I want to know why a customer's going to buy it. And I would like to know why they buy, how they buy, when they buy, where they buy. So it's your, just your value proposition and why you're superior to the competition. And the fifth one is really how do you execute? How are you going to deliver the project? So my management capability, my market opportunity, my value proposition and how I'm going to deliver, that's what a private investor wants to know. So if you spend the time building this sort of response up, you've got the chance of actually securing the funding. You do it well, you may be able to actually use that to secure private delivery funding as well as non-delivery. So it's work that you have to do anyway. It's work you're going to have to do anyway. And frankly, I think in my experience, if you try and write it in a way that you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole just to meet the grant, it's probably not going to be the right thing for you and don't do that. Not the right thing to do. Um, So a lot of this sort of stuff is just you building your vision, your strategy, how you're going to execute to actually do the race. (laughs) And a lot of what you've got to substantiate is what a lot of them do see. But yeah, it's not free money because I go back to the point, your time's valuable and therefore let's do it in a sort of an effective way. How long are the timeframes? Are we talking a month, two months? Oh yeah, good question. 12? The AC program's actually open 12 months a year. But there are certain decision cycles and there's around about eight or nine sort of actual decision meetings during the year. And so what we find is that people can put an application for guidance in any time, but once we've actually worked out you've actually got a competitive project, then you've got to write it all and get it into a process. So that process from if you've got some of your ducks well lined up can probably be somewhere between three to five months. 
The government process is going to be six to eight weeks. You're not going to shorten that because that's just process. Seems pretty fast to me for a government process, really. And then if you add, no matter how well you've got everything written, I suspect it's probably going to take you a bit more than a month. Now I'm into three months. If I haven't got my ducks lined up or I haven't got my matched, my secured funding. So they do talk about it being somewhere between three to five months from you putting application for guidance in, how you can secure the decision that you've actually got a grant awarded to you. Yeah. So I guess, Steve, when people are talking to you about R&D tax incentive, they really also need to be thinking about their next steps and starting to get the ducks in the row so that they're well placed with their investment strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Grants, ESIC, I guess corporate structure leading into that as well for investment vehicles leading down that that pathway. Tracy, I think one question you asked a bit earlier is about what's in it for government with grants generally. And I guess another part of that answer is, and hopefully so, government and treasury obviously look at what is the benefit in the future. So naturally, all companies want to succeed. And then obviously government wants to see companies succeed as well. And if you think about it, they've done their modelling through Treasury to say, look, if I invest in this company here, do my one-to-one funding with them, and hence the merit criteria that, that Greg speaks about is vitally important to get the right companies through the door, that will be successful in, in, in hope. Is that they say, well, if companies are successful, they're going to push forward, they're going to employ more people, there's going to be more payroll tax, there's going to be more GST through the system, all these other sort of costs, benefits and taxes that come through the system as well, that's going to benefit the government. I don't know what the figures are, but let's say for every $1 the government might put in, they may get a $2 return over time through all these different various taxes and things like that come into play. And it's nothing sinister. It's probably just good monetary funding. Pretty good return on investment. Just picking up a point, I think you're absolutely right. That sort of need for funding merit criteria from an AC, one of the parts there is what they really want. And this is actually the government's investment proposition. So they want to know that you need it. But they'd like to know what the economic impact is, and they're really fundamentally looking at jobs, diversity, exports, some non-financial knowledge improvement and diffusion. So these are the things that government wants to look at. Some of the stats are, by the way, just I think from an AC, you can probably talk about it from an R&D side of things, but I think in the last year there was something like 66 ventures, sorry, 100 ventures that were awarded $66 million worth of accelerating commercialization funding. Over the last five or six years, I think it's been something like about 500 to 600 million. I can't remember exactly. There's been a lot of money. And I, I think the reward that the government's actually looking at is how that can actually create ventures that can actually attract other funding to actually grow that, as we talk about, jobs, diversity, income. And I think some of the stats that some of the IC projects that have accrued something like about another $4 billion worth of private funding. Four billion from 67 million. Oh, no, 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 no. That, that's about 600 odd. Yeah. Sorry, that's over the life of the program, it's over 600 ventures that they've supported. That's around about 250 to 300 million of actual funding, right? So 66 in the last year, 300 more than that. From that 300, that's obviously match money. So that's $600 million worth of commercialization activity that's future down the road is actually raising another $4 billion. So these are the type of things that the government's looking at that what they really want to get and they want that IP to stay in the country. Yeah, and I guess the spillover benefits to this are quite substantial, not just in the financial but the people as well. That's the knowledge. And the knowledge and keeping those people ambitious, driven people, creating innovations of the future that are going to help us in our everyday lives and I guess have impact on human health in this sector specifically and keep them in Australia to benefit Australians. Absolutely. And I think just the programs, when you wrap it together, we get the sort of the R&D, we're commercialising. So what we're really doing is that Australia is really sensational at, at research and development. 
coming up with new stuff where we haven't been as strong as actually that translation, that commercialization bit. And I think if we start combining what Steve's talking about with the sort of cell we're going to actually help that R&D translate into real world outcomes to get the, the type of benefit that you just spoke about. Excellent reason to get up in the morning and go to work for you two gentlemen and me as well, actually. It's part of my day job. <laughs> Is it more than just the money? So I'm a company. It's still a lot of, that's a lot of time, a lot of effort. Say that I have a private, I have a private investment anyway. Is there any other extra benefit that I get from going through either of these processes from your perspectives? I guess from the R&D perspective, if you do add value to your R&D and you are doing an R&D claim, what we found is that if in the future the company is looking at a trade sale or doing an M&A, depending on the size or value of that R&D, that gets part of the, the value and that could add value to the M&A transaction as well. So that does occur. I'm not suggesting it's significant in, in the grand scheme of things, but that would and add, does add value. I think even with grant funding as well, it just adds to the benefit of, hey, look, we, we've been an innovative company or we've been very successful in our commercialization with the commercialization side of grants, then it probably just attracts that, that sort of larger pool of opportunity moving forward locally and internationally. What about from your perspective, Greg? I guess what I've been observing, so as I say, I've been involved with just over a year and a half now, and I think what I've seen from past applicants and those coming through, number one, I think, as I said earlier, they actually really do just benefit from having a third party just giving them some advice. The guidance, I think, is a huge amount of value, regardless of the money. I think the having gone through the process and you've actually been able to actually demonstrate your value in a proper project, I think that's actually huge. One, you've got a sale. And secondly, the evidence that you've got to get your follow-on funding. And I think with some of these grant programs and government ones, you know, the government, like some private ones, are trying to make sure that they de-risk a project, so they're going to introduce you to other funders, other projects, other customers. And I think there is actually some value in saying I've actually done some R&D, so I've got some validated IP. I've done a commercialization, and the government supported that. So I think people do leverage a lot of that kudos, if you will. So it's almost like a stand, like a little tick of a... Yeah, yeah, I think so. Not an accreditation or a certificate, so maybe a participation a certificate. In the running race. And I'm sure you'd find it too with that sort of stuff that you're doing with the R&D, but we actually do find a, if you've gone through the due diligence of an AC application, people use that as a sort of a bit of a validation of what they've actually done and it does help them in their capital raising. Yeah, right. So here's a thorny question. If you've done the due diligence, so the due diligence happens within the accelerating commercialization program and I'm an investor, can I see that? In fact, we actually do it in conjunction with some of those. In fact, we're actually a really interesting one for a private investor, the way the AC program is. The AC wants to match their money to something that is secured. And so you, it is actually an eligible thing to do is to have an investor that will sit there and say, I will commit my money, therefore I've got the secured funding, on the basis that the government awards this grant. And so in a sense, because of the due diligence process and understand how it works, actually know it's been through due diligence and it's passed an investment committee. And so we do see some projects to do that. When we do due diligence, we actually talk to investors. We talk to customers just like actually a lot of private investment managers. So yeah, they do get the benefit of all of that. So as an investor, it can be helpful in my due diligence looking at an opportunity to say it's been through the AC program or it's considering an AC program and make use of that in in your due diligence process. 
And you can see why that actually works that way because government is sharing the risk with a private investor, sharing the risk, and together they're taking the risk to demonstrate the value proposition of that new IP. It's a win-win for both. I love a win-win. Everyone's happy. I like everyone. Well, it's a win-win-win because the venture <laughs> the venture's actually got the project fully funded. Investors actually happy because they've got some non-dilutory air. Everyone's- Government's happy because they've actually got the project going. Everyone's winning. All right, so I just want to tie the conversation, bring it around and tie it up in, in a nice little bow with the old chestnut of what are the tips and tricks that you can pass on to people that are sort of thinking about, they want to know more about government incentives. What are the tricks that people need to know about from an investor perspective or from an entrepreneur program? Is there something that you see every day and you think, I really wish that everyone knew to stop doing that? Or that if they ca- if only they came to me earlier for a conversation. Record keeping, yeah. uh, supporting and substantiating materials, particularly around, I guess, R&D and grants, innovation grants. The R&D doesn't exist. You might have the most fantastic project and uh, it's wordsmith perfectly well and legitimately, but it's actually meaningless if you can't support and substantiate it with your own internal records with what you've actually done along the way. An example would be you come across some of these terrific nutty professors sometimes and they're worldly, they're very godlike. All the knowledge is up the top here in their mind. And it's like, well, terrific R&D. It's really greatly innovative, but it's actually meaningless from an R&D tax incentive perspective if it's not down black and white on paper somewhere. So record keeping is actually vitally important along the way. So is that record keeping in like as a bookkeeper of invoices and financials or is that record keeping as a scientist in terms of in my lab book? Probably both and probably the scientist side, in particular for the project side. I reacted chemical A with chemical B, I saw this observation, so that sort of granularity, but definitely the invoices side as well. How does that those expenses relate to the R&D tests and experiments that you actually conducted over here? So it's integrated. So record keeping is going to be vitally important. Excellent. That's a really good tip to know. What about you, Greg? Any tips and tricks? Probably just picks a little bit up what you just said. Second ago, in terms of coming early, think, yeah, the best advice I think I give to a lot of people is really just map out that commercialization journey. Map out that race, right? Really understand where I'm at now. My leg one, how far am I? What do I need to do next? What do I need to do after that? I really quite welcome actually talking to people that are sort of like even halfway through leg one. And I can actually sit down and talk about where they're at and what their journey's going to be and let them understand what they've got to deliver by the end of leg one so they're positioned. So we do see some that sort of come along that one They've probably started to build that proof of concept and then all of a sudden they're starting to build a demonstrator and you sit there and go, well, hang on, the government could have paid for half of that. <laughs> That's annoying. Exactly. So I don't think you can be too early. We will tell you that you're early, but this is what you've got to do to actually position yourself. And so maybe in two months, three months, or this is where you're at. Now we can actually get you to think about what a project's going to look like. In fact, I actually do talk to people before they even put an application for guidance in to what their project might look like. And we can even tell them before they even do that stage as to whether or not they've got a chance or not. So I think it's actually just having that discussion a little bit earlier about them being very clear about what their overall journey. <laughs> Still haven't used pivot yet. I was about to say. So that, disappointed. Yeah, that, that, so they're not pivoting too much. <laughs> but what their journey is, <laughs> you know, beyond that race, how they think they need to capitalise that whole race and whether or not that's actually them using some of their own private funds. So, for example, you know, what we do see on some, that the R&D tax incentive, the rebate, that actually can be very useful funding to actually be used to match some of the commercialization funding. So if you finish your R&D, 
You've just got a chunk of the money back. Now I've got it commercialized. So I put that aside. Now I'm actually matching that. And if I do all of that, then that's actually positioned me to actually do my pitching for my growth capital. So it's just planning that out. So it's a constant story of leverage then in some respects and being like really clever with what you've got and using that to make it eke it out and make it go as far as it possibly can. And I think it's the same with you, Steve. I mean, people come and talk to you early about this is what they're planning to do. You can tell them how to structure the record keeping, what the projects and where yeah, it's definitely. going to be. Yeah. And I guess another part of that R&D journey then as well, which may be beneficial to, I guess, the listeners, is all that R&D is retrospective in nature. So you spend the money, you put your forms in, you make a claim. There, there, is, there are R&D debt financiers out there in the world as well. So prospectively, as you're conducting your R&D through the year, after a certain period, call it quarterly, if you like, or half yearly, you can go to one of the R&D debt financiers and say, hey, Mr. Financier, I've spent this much on R&D. I'm comfortable with my R&D advisor and my, my tax advisor that, hey, this is all great. And they'll fund you up to a certain value of your refund, expected refund ahead of time. So you can get that done through the year too, which is, I guess that's extra injection through the year of capital that, or working capital that works for you. Yeah, because that, that, that basically becomes surplus cash. Yeah. And they, that they can discretionally apply that to where they want it to be. And now that might be a good idea to apply that to a commercialization project. And that is now I'm starting to have the money that I can actually get matched to. I do take your point earlier about there's no double dipping. And that's actually not double dipping because you've actually done your R&D. You've got the money back. Now you're choosing. And so, again, talking to Steve and myself, we can actually tell you that activity there. That's bona fide R&D. That activity there, that's bona fide you know, commercialization. And so you can cost it, track it you know, quite separately and feel comfortable that you're not going to be caught double dipping. Thank you. On that note, I'm going to say thank you very much for your time, for coming in today and chatting all things about government incentives and making it as interesting as I possibly could, <laughs> talking about non-dilutive funding and R&D tax incentive. So thanks, Steve. Thanks, Greg. Pleasure. And we'll uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Life Sciences WA, which is Western Australia's Life Sciences Industry Association, in collaboration with Talking Health Tech. It's been made possible with funding support from the Western Australian Government through the New Industries Fund and the Ready Initiative, managed by MTP Connect, on behalf of the Medical Research Future Fund and with the support of Ant Health. If you liked this episode, please complete the feedback survey. There's a link to that survey you can access from within your podcast player. You can also follow Life Sciences WA on LinkedIn and Twitter or subscribe to the mailing list at lifesciencewa.com.au.